Good morning. Um, if you've been reading along in Route 66, if you're a guest, by the way, welcome. We've, we've been, as a church, uh, trying to read the Bible together. So if you're interested in doing that, you can go to sycamorehill.life, uh, our, our campus. And right there is a way to sort of join in and read along with the Bible. It kind of helps you each week. And I wouldn't say don't go back to the start. Just jump in with us and stay in sync with us. But last week we worked in Exodus. We got sort of free from Pharaoh across the sea is where we found ourselves by, the, by Friday. Which means next week you're going to have this somewhat troubling trip to the mountain where you'll be a little frustrated with Israel already. You'll get to the mountain. That's where we will receive the Ten Commandments. So it'll be a very important moment in the week. And then Moses is going to ascend up into the mountain to receive the law. And this is the point where Exodus starts to get really boring. Uh, if you're trying to read along, like it's going to go from story to what will feel like rules. And I want to I just encourage you a little bit. First of all, I would get, I'd encourage you to have an ear for the justice of God. There's some really profound views of the world that are new to the people and that God brings. He's bringing a justice to them. But also, the purpose of placing the law there. You're going to get law from like chapter 23 and it's going to go all the way to 31. And what it's serving as is the, the, the author of Exodus is putting it in there to make you kind of feel the 40 days where Moses is in the mountain getting the law. So he's giving us an excerpt of the law, like almost to allow us to participate with what might have been happening in the mountain. Uh, and also to put some space between Moses going up and him coming down to the golden calf in 32. So I just want to kind of seed it with a little bit of purpose as you listen. That might make it a little bit easier in our reading. Okay. <clears throat> well, that said, um, the, probably the thing I've gotten the most questions about over the past several weeks doesn't have anything to do with Route 66. It has everything to do with Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Lots of people have been asking me, what do I think about the movie? And so I thought... Uh, that in the next four minutes, you're going to get a more accurate definition of air combat than the entire movie is able to give you. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about radar theory. And the reason I want to talk about radar theory is because real air-to-air -air combat takes place with its dueling radars. It's not all that stuff you saw in the movie theater. So a radar, the way a radar works is it sends out an electron which bounces off of an object and comes back to it, like a tennis ball, like an electronic tennis ball. So it sends a tennis, it, it knows how fast it throws this electronic tennis ball. So when it leaves, it bounces and comes back, it can do a little bit of math and say, therefore, the object is that far away. That's basic, that is the most basic radar theory. Now, you can add to that another level of complexity that if the object that you're looking at, that you're bouncing the tennis balls on, if it's moving towards you or away from you at a high rate of speed, well, if you throw a lot of tennis balls consecutively, you can get a sense of its speed by the rate at which they come back, right? So if I threw a tennis ball at the back wall here, uh, it, you know, it would take 30 or 40 feet of time to get back to me. But if I was one foot away from it, it would come right back again. And that is the basis of what we would call Doppler radar. Doppler radar is a radar that's sensitive enough and it's sort of elegant enough to not only 
bounce the electrons off of the object, but also do some elegant math when there's changing rates of closure. And from that we can learn an awful lot about the object uh, that we're uh, surveying. Now, the, all of this works really naturally if you're in big blue sky and there's not a lot around so that the only thing that returns to you is, is the signature of uh, the bandit, okay, in a Top Gun sort of way, right? But what happens if the radar is tilted down at the ground? Now, every electron you send out comes back, right? Because it all bounces off the ground. So you can imagine if you're staring up in the sky, the only thing that's returning on you is, is the, the tennis balls bouncing off of the airplane. But the moment you point down, now everything you send out is coming back, you know, and yeah, there's something there, okay? So this is where radar theory gets a little bit difficult because how do you, how do you build a radar that's looking for the thing you're interested in, but that's not clouded out by all the things you're not interested in? So a really good radar is able to see so many things that, in fact, if it showed you everything you could see, you couldn't see the target you're interested in. But what it actually does, the, the real elegance of a good radar is the fact that it's killing, it's cropping out and filtering out all that noise so that you can see the one thing you're interested in. But it's worth appreciating, if you actually saw everything for what it was, you would never see the thing, you'd never even be able to discern the thing that's actually important. Okay? so. Two things just happened. First of all, you learn more about air combat in four minutes than you did in Top Gun, okay? Secondly, we're kind of set up a little bit for a, a way to think about something that's gonna happen in the story of God that uh, just requires a little bit of discernment uh, to appreciate. The Lord has chosen to turn the noise down on something so we can see what's really important. This message this morning is devoted to the messy parts of the story. <clears throat> um, I'm mindful, and this, this morning's message is particularly mindful of someone who may have read Genesis and they got to the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call them the patriarchs. They got to this section or body of text and they came, they they had to deal with that feeling inside of like, Abraham's done a lot of really bad things. What do I do with that? Okay, this morning, this message is mindful. If you had that experience, it's mindful of that. In fact, some people who have this experience, if it matures a little bit, if you know, the more and more you add frustration to this, you move from being like, oh, wow, he did a lot of bad things to, it doesn't feel like he deserves to have the promise. And I mean the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They don't really look deserving. And if this feeling is allowed sort of to fester, it actually can find its way reflecting negatively on the Lord. Someone can read this and go, what kind of God would use these people to carry this promise? And so this morning, uh, that that's what we're particularly mindful about, which is why we're gonna be sort of devoting time to some of the messy parts of the story. I'm gonna use the word sin uh, quite a bit. What I mean by sin is 
so the way I'm going to use the word today is any time you can imagine that someone ought to have done better. That's, that's what I would call sin. Not that they maybe could have done better if they had training. I'm not talking about a skill problem. I'm talking about a will problem. Anytime we come to a place where, even in your own life, you have these regrets of, I really ought to have uh, behaved better with my spouse or my children or, or one of my employees or my neighbor. That sense of oughtness, like you, that you can imagine a better version of yourself. Okay, anytime we, we can get to a place in the Bible or in life for that matter, and imagine a better version of a character, let's just call that sin, when the reality is less than what it could have been. Okay, and our goal this morning is to understand how the sin of the patriarchs does or does not play a role in the promise. All the sin we see, like, is it signal or is it noise? Is it what we're supposed to really concentrate on or is it in the way? What do we do with it? Right? That's our goal this morning. And you can't figure that out by looking at any one example. We've got to look at them all. So uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to figure out with the patriarchs, then ask the question about the broader story, which involves us. So with that said, if you turn to Genesis 12, we'll kind of jump off. And we're going to jump off from a familiar place. So you're going to say, haven't we read this before? And the answer is yes. Some parts of the Bible are just too important that even in a 66-week period, you might be saying, by the way, hey, if we got 66 books, why are we still in Genesis? It's because we're pre- on Sunday, we're preaching the story at the rate of the story. Monday through Friday, you're reading the Bible. So there's going to be times where, I mean, otherwise, hey, we could be in the prophets for two-thirds of our year, and you don't want that. So trust me on this. Like, we're going to pace the story. But Genesis 12 is a huge part of the story. God calls Abram in Genesis 12. Abraham in faith follows God and leaves and goes. But this is where we get to kind of the first messy account. It's, it's Genesis 12, verse 10. And I'm going to reread this story for us. It says this. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. But you, they will let live. So you are my, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your uh, wife? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, so again, we've been here before. Here's my question. Is there any sin in this account? 
Right? Obviously, right? It's, just, it's yes, of course there's sin. And at every, at pretty much multiple levels. It's obvious, the sin of Pharaoh is obvious, actually because God makes it distinctly obvious. God visits him with a plague. So in the case of Pharaoh, the, his sin is concretely highlighted by the action of God. God smites him with a plague. Okay? I'm not saying that Pharaoh sees the full depth of his sin, but Pharaoh realizes, because of what the Lord does, the report of God in his life, Pharaoh realizes he's done something wrong and he better get it right again. Okay? So obviously the sin of Pharaoh uh, sticks out. What about Abram? Did Abram sin? Sure. You can say it. Like, Abram sinned. And a way to answer this is, can you imagine a better version of Abram? Can you tell a story with a better husband than that? Sure. Does the book of Genesis say Abram sinned? The answer is no. It doesn't. This is what's hard sometimes. In fact, you could say, what are the divine consequences? I mean, if Pharaoh sins, the Lord smites him with a plague. Does Abram get a plague? No. Actually, Abram comes out the winner in this story. Camels, goats, donkeys, servants. I actually think Hagar is one of these female servants. He comes away with a lot. So we think he sinned, but it doesn't say he sinned. And in fact, he's the winner here. Does the, here's the last question. Does the book of Genesis think this is sin? That might get to the kind of the rub. Does the writer, so I know what you think and I think, does the writer think it's sin? I say yes. It may not be as obvious now. Uh, I say yes because this is part of a pattern. But I would suggest to you here, well, for one, it's customary that you have these really brilliant moments of faithfulness in Genesis of the patriarchs that are followed by a pattern of sin. You're like, ah. Almost as though the writer wants you to go, don't think so great of the person. Before you, before you praise the person, you should know this, okay? So there's just gonna be this pattern in the word. But I would say, otherwise, why tell the story at all? And the story certainly doesn't commend Abram to the reader. If it was a work of propaganda, you wouldn't have this. So I think the writer thinks it's sin. I think the writer wants you to know it's sin. I think the writer is making Pharaoh's sin discreetly clear. God is. God is not the writer. But I think with Abram, we're left having to make our own decisions. Something like that. All right, that's the first example. Uh, you can go to Genesis 13 now. This is actually a quick side road, but it's helpful in sort of building the picture. So Genesis 13, Abram and Lot are traveling. Their flocks increase because God said he'd bless them. Pretty soon it's hard for their flocks to feed and, and, and grow together. So Abram says to, to Lot, hey, you pick whatever land you want. You can have it. I'll take the other land. Go ahead. And, and Lot is gonna, is gonna choose the valley of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because it appears 
from a distance as though it is the garden of God itself. And this is uh, the 12th and 13th verse of 13. So uh, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. This is verse 12. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now the reason I want to read this passage is I want to make it abundantly clear that the category of sinfulness is in the front of the mind of the writer of Genesis. It's not an unimportant concept. He's not writing an amoral history, and that's not why we didn't get to hear of Abraham's sin. He actually, this is the very next chapter. This is like almost the same column of text. He's, the writer is very attuned to righteousness and wickedness and sinfulness. Here, here he makes it clear, right? Once again, you look at the, you get to Abram, you don't hear much about sin, but you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, they sin greatly, it says. Again, I just don't want us to think that the book of Genesis is somehow too primitive to deal with sin. Remember Genesis 1 through 11, the prelude? Remember 3 through 11 is a theology of sin, the falling of humanity. So there is a very sophisticated understanding of sinfulness coming into this story. And it seems that it's more than happy to apply this sophisticated doctrine to Pharaoh and Sodom and Gomorrah. What about Abram? Well, let's see. Go to chapter 16. Let's look at another another example here. So chapter 15 is this grand chapter of faithfulness. The Lord comes to Abram. You're my shield. I'm your shield, your great reward. Abram says, I don't feel that way. The Lord says, I'm going to bless you. Out of you is going to come a sun, stars of the sky, this, that, and the other, yada, yada, yada. Awesome, right? That's chapter 15. This should be somewhat uh, familiar to you, to us as well from our reading, but here we get to 16. Let me just read the first six verses. So immediately after that vision... You get this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, had, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looks on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Any sin in this story? Obviously, right? Obviously. Sarai and Abram both sinned. We're just going to pick on Abraham today. But obviously, they both you could imagine a better version of both of them. But for Abram particularly, you could imagine a husband leading better. You could imagine a man trusting in the Lord's promise better. Deep, deep at the root of this for Abram is something like 
somehow, despite God's promise in my life, my own wife is in the way of God's faithfulness to me. Okay, that is a sad, that's dark. I can imagine a better version of Abram. Obviously, the Bible sees it as sin. And it wants us to see it. Why tell the story? Why put it right here? Does the Lord say it's sinful? Does the writer say it's sinful? No. You could even ask, what about the divine consequences? I mean, does, does the Lord come along and say, strike some Abram, because you did this, you're not going to have a son. Because you did this, I'm going to turn somewhere else because of this, right? There's none of that, right? In fact, out of all of this, Abram gets a son. You could argue, in his mind, he's a winner. Let's look at another one. Go to chapter 18. 18 and 19 uh, represent sort of the boundaries of the Sodom and Gomorrah epic. And we're not going to look, I don't want to spend much time on, uh, we'll just look at the sin of Sodom in quick passing. It's the framework I want us to pay attention to. So uh, look at 18 verse 20. Okay, so the, the Lord's visiting with Abraham. He's going to send some angelic ambassadors down into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is what he says in 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So for one, I, I, I put this in front just to help, help us appreciate that sinfulness is in the forefront of God's mind and that the writer of Genesis has it in the forefront of his mind. Okay. The, there's this outcry, which, by the way, it's another just brief moment. But for people who have struggled dealing with struggle dealing with the judgment of God, I want us to see this is a pattern that starts. God's response against Sodom and Gomorrah is based upon His compassion to the outcry of pain and suffering He hears, like the groaning of brokenness coming out of the city is such that he can no longer ignore it. It's worth noting, even God's judgment is compassionate, spurred on by a sense of what's right, okay? So anyway, he's gonna go look, but there's this, this super high awareness of sinfulness, okay? And then the rest of 18 is, is Abraham trying to sort of talk the Lord off, his, off what he's gonna do. Aren't you? Abraham thinks the Lord's a little bit harsh in his, in his sense of righteousness. So it's like, what if there's 50 righteous, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, 2010, right? All the way down. Abraham works with the Lord until Abraham realizes actually the Lord is more merciful perhaps than even Abraham would have been. Then we get to the account in, in 19, the actual account in the city. And this part I do have to read. Uh, so the angels go in. They get uh, seen by the village, seen by the city. The city's banging on the door saying, send out these men so that they can forcibly rape these men. And here's how Lot, the nephew of Abraham, behaves. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who, do not, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Sin? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you imagine a better lot? What if Jesus was lot? Oh, man. It would have been so great. Obviously, this is sin. A quick like public service announcement here because it's important. God is, and we, we don't have the time, but in all of these occasions, particularly these ones where uh, the wife or the woman or a young girl is the victim of the sin, God shows up as the protector. In this story, God saves them. In the story of Abram and, or Pharaoh and Sarah, God saves them. In, the, in all these stories, Hagar, God saves her. There's all these stories, in which, by the way, is a backhanded allusion. To, the writer's letting you know that it is sin. The fact that God has to come up and clean up behind and be the rescuer is a testimony. It's a silent testimony, if you're being inductive, that there really was a better way. That the Lord is not going to allow the actual actions, the evil coming from the promised holders, he's not going to allow it to have the the full negative effect. He's going to stop it. And he proves himself through that. So does the Bible think this is sin? Obviously. Sure it does. Does it call it sin? No. Start getting used to this, by the way. Go to uh, chapter 20. Abraham and Abimelech. You'll feel like we've seen this before. Let me read the first three verses of 20. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Let me stop there. Abimelech is in trouble. So is it obvious that Abimelech has sinned? Yeah, right? The Lord shows up. Abimelech, I'm about to smite you dead. Right? Here's what, here's what Abimelech says, verse four. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said to the Lord, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, he did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. We'll stop there. Does Abimelech sin? Obviously, the Lord says it, okay? Now, he comes short of actually Again, we could say, I wish Abimelech could see the full scope of his sin. This cultural right of the kings and chiefs of taking an attractive woman, obviously, right, we're not seeing the full depth of Abimelech's sin, but at least the Lord is cutting it off 
at a particular point saying that, do not do that, says the Lord. And Abimelech goes to Abraham and says to Abraham, why did you put me in a position where I almost sinned? This idea of bringing great sin upon us. One translation says great guilt upon us. He says, Abraham, you almost put me in a position where I brought great moral guilt upon me and my village such that the Lord would have destroyed us. Clearly, Abimelech almost sinned. It's like the source of the whole story. What about Abraham? He said, you read this story. Abimelech looks like a better man than Abraham does. Do you know Sarah might already be pregnant? She's supposed to have a baby this year. And Abraham let her go. Will the Bible call it sin? No. The Bible will not call it sin. In fact, Abraham is going to walk away from this with wealth, tons of silver, and also he will be like forever the feared prophet of God to the people of Abimelech. I have to move faster for time. So uh, we could go real slow, uh, but I'm going to go faster Uh, if you would just trust that the same pattern exists, but uh, I'm just going to walk through some of the rest of the story. Genesis 26, Isaac is going to do with another Abimelech what his father Abraham did with Abimelech. He's going to say about his wife, she's my sister. The exact thing is going to pretty much happen. Is it sin? Yes. Will the Bible say it was sin? No. Genesis 27, Jacob's going to deceive his father, steal the blessing. Is it sin? Obviously it's sin. Is the Bible going to say it's sin? No, the Bible's not going to say it's sin. Genesis 29 and 30, Jacob's going to make a hobby of marrying women. Sin, it's such a painful chapter, you can hardly read it. Is the Bible going to say it's sin? No. Does the Bible want you to know it's sin? Obviously it does. Genesis 34, the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, is going to be taken by some other village and raped. The father, Jacob, is not going to do anything about it. He's just going to kind of hem and haw in a fearful sort of way. So some of his oldest sons, Simeon and Levi, are going to rise up. They're going to slaughter the village and plunder it for all it's worth. Can you imagine a better version of all these characters? It's obviously sin. Is the Bible going to say it's sin? No. Genesis 35, Reuben is going to lay with his father's wife, Bilhah. Is the Bible going to say that's sin? No. Genesis 37. The brothers of Joseph are going to conspire to murder him. In a moment, they're going to throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery to Egypt. Is that sin? Yes. Should we think it's sin? Obviously. Will it say it's sin? No. Now, how is it in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain is brooding over Abel, the Lord comes to Cain and says, Cain, why is your head downcast? Pick up your head. Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you? Why is the Lord directly pleading with Cain not to do this terrible thing when you have tenfold worse, 10 brothers doing it to one of their brother, 30 some odd chapters later, and the Lord doesn't say a thing. Why does Cain get cursed and banished when these brothers ultimately end up in Egypt in their own land? At the end of the story, they're gonna win. Is this sin? Yes. Will it say it? No. Genesis 37, Judah and Tamar. It's harder, it's hard to find a sadder story than Judah and Tamar. The sin is going to be so frustrating 
Will it say it? No. I could go on. I mean, I'm skipping stories just to give you these. We, because of time. You, this is one of these moments, you ever think how boring it is? You get to these lineages in Genesis. You're like, why is this here? It's because you need a break. Like, what do you want? I could You want to sin in every chapter? You just, just take those as a, thank God. It's like rolling the window down. Thank you, right? Almost every, people will say, I've heard people say before, you know, Joseph is the only one in the, in the book of Genesis who's not guilty of a sin. I think, really? You don't think he's, he takes one of his brothers hostage, gives his father a tremendous amount of anxiety and his brothers, right? I, I gotta say, I don't know how bad that sin is. I don't know how many units of sin it is. I can imagine a better version of Joseph. You say, well, he didn't sin because the Lord didn't say it was a sin. To which I say, well, get in line. The Lord has not used the word sin to associate to anyone inside the promise. Not once so far in this whole story. In fact, there will only be one occasion when this is Approached, And even then, it's sort of in a slanted way. If you just go to the very end of the book, Genesis chapter 50, you'll get this one moment. And even it is bent. It's frustrating. So Jacob's going to, right, all the brothers are in Egypt. Jacob is in Egypt. You know, despite what the brothers did to Joseph, it's all working out for the best. But then Jacob dies, and so the brothers are nervous now. Now that our dad's dead, now Joseph has, is going to take his rightful vengeance on us for what we did, okay? So here's what they do. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. So I just want you to appreciate, they're lying. okay. And the Bible will not say this is a sin. So they make, as best we can tell, they make this story up about their dead father. Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of your servants of God, of of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So I'll I'll stop there. In a lot of ways, this is a a, a helpful thesis for the whole book, the whole story of Abraham of despite everything that we do, God is still on his way to a good blessing, okay? So this is a powerful moment. It's, It's about the one moment in the book of Genesis where we get close. Still, God never said this. It was just people talking to people. But still, nonetheless, it seems like it's good and true and it's intended to be seen for that, okay? But I actually think the answer to the question goes deeper than this. Why does God, let's just just take a note. For those who are inside the promise of God, sin is not counted against them. Think about that for a second. In the book of Genesis, For anyone who is underneath the banner of the promise of God, sin is not, nor will it ever be counted against them. The moment you're outside of the umbrella of the banner of God, you better watch out. I'm about to strike you dead for your sin. But if you get underneath the banner of God's promise, sin will not be counted against you. 
Now, the writer is still going to describe the story so that you, the reader, know it's sinful. It's like the writer is not trying to ignore the sin. It's not, turn, it's not turning down all the noise so that you can't see the sin. You're supposed to see the sin, but you're supposed to also realize it seems that if you are underneath the banner of the promise of God, that sin will not be held against you. Do you hear it? This, to me, is the most sublime gospel narrative in the whole Bible. I live before the Lord because of this, and you do too. Can you imagine if your story was written for everyone to read? Lay it out, not just you, grab all your generations, all your crazy uncles or whatever, right? Just put it all out there so that everybody can read. Generation of generation of the things that happened in your life, the things you thought to yourself, the decisions, all the disappointment, all of that. Can you imagine if that was, and here's the deal, is if you, for as long as you are beneath the banner of the promise of God, your sin will not be held against you. Period. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. One day, right, one great day, the great day of the Lord, we're going to arrive and there's going to be this accuser and these books of things people have done, right, everybody's story all laid out. And I can just imagine the accuser being ready, be like, what about the time he did this? And what about the time he did that? All this guile and all this desire to pin us down. The best weapon that the enemy has against, he's formed against us, is the rightful accusation of our sinful acts. That's what he has. That's his, that's his ammunition to indict us. And on that day, if he comes to open his mouth, the Lord is going to say, stop. For this child is beneath the promise. I will therefore not account their sin against them. Now you might say, if you're sitting here going, well, it doesn't seem fair. Like Abimelech's going to get judged for his sin, but Abraham is not. And I'm going to say, that is exactly right. That is what we call mercy. The unmerited favor of God to sinful people simply because they find their way to be under the umbrella of his promise. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not as though your sin just poofs and goes away every time Every moment that there's a sin that could have been counted to you is placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, right? Every single time for in order for the Lord not to hold you accountable for what you've done, to say in the day of judgment, I'm not going to hold, I'm not going to account this sin. Every single one of those from every single one of us has been placed on our Lord Jesus Christ. That's mercy. This is 66 books, but it's one story. And what you see is in the first book of the Bible, we are confronted with the profound, profound merciful grace of God upon our immorality through the sake of his promise. It's a good story. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the way you've turned your word. Maybe even the way you cast in it and catch us with it. Lord, I want, to, I want to lift all of us up to you, particularly those who maybe have been outside your promise. May this morning, may they be attracted to what you've done for us. 
I pray they would be invited in. I pray they would, we would remember this promise was to extend so that all the families of the world would be blessed. It's not supposed to be a small umbrella for six people, but to expand to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people so that all would find their shelter beneath the most high God. Lord, I want to thank you that in your forbearance, you have not held these things against us and others. And we know, Lord, that if you were to, to let all the noise of our life, if you were to consider all of it, Lord, our righteousness would be its filthy rags and our sin would crowd out even our little acts of faith. Lord, may we, when we come to mind that we belong to you, may we place our praise and joy on Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.